Hello and welcome to Intune, the Scottish Music Centre series of podcasts. My name is Keith Beattie and today I am joined with Donald Shaw from Capricale and the creative producer for Celtic Connections. How are you doing, Donald? Doing good, thanks. Good. Thanks for taking the time to come on here. Happy to be here. Something to do. (laughs) (laughs) One of the first things I always ask, and it's became a sort of habit now, is um, how did it all start? Was it always going to be music for you? Well, certainly music was always part of my life. Um, My parents were both very musical. Uh, In fact, they had a a wedding kind of band, a kind of Cayley band, really. Uh, for, and I, I grew up with uh, uh, three sisters who all played music and it was just always in the house. Um, people used to kind of pass, come in at the house and there'd be Cayleys at the weekends. I, I was brought up in a village called Tinal near Oban, up on the West Coast. Um, and I'm old enough that I was brought up at a time where telly wasn't the main source of entertainment. You know, it was kind of much, I suppose, much more kind of uh, of a kind of social free-for-all, really. You know, people just come around by the house. Um, so my dad played the box, my mum played the piano, and I went to music lessons very young. Did I learned piano originally, clarinet and saxophone for school, things like that. Um, so... Yeah, just music was there. I remember kind of, although my dad played essentially, you know, trad music on the box um, and played for Kayleys and stuff, he also, in those days, it was quite common that if you were a wedding band, for instance, you did everything. So, you know, you'd have to play for a quick step or a jive or whatever. And also... Strangely, in the village halls back then, it was kind of assumed that, yeah, you might play a um, Canadian barn dance and a Strip the Willow, but you also would play the hits that were on in the hit parade at that time. Mm -hmm. So I remember my dad used to have a strange microphone. He'd sit in front of the telly and he'd record Top of the Pops every week. And he'd (laughs) he'd, he'd learn whatever number one was, so he was ready for, you know, people asking for it. Amazing. Yeah. And sometimes you'd buy the sheet music. So I just, I remember that at a very early age, you know, everything from like Shawadawadi to Sweet to kind of like, I don't know, like 70s hits really. Mm-hmm. Um, and the record collection was really diverse. Everything from sort of contemporary jazz, like, you know, Miles or Annette Coleman mm-hmm. through to the Carpenters, you know, easy listening. So, and a lot of rec- big classical co- collection as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, music was just, music was in the house, but it was definitely just a social thing. It wasn't, obviously my parents, my dad was a, a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. My mum had been a teacher and, you know, when I went to school, went to open high school, um, although I was playing music a lot in, there was an amazing teacher there, Dave Mason, who, took a wind band and a stage band. And I think, you know, it's maybe hard for students to understand nowadays, but back then there was kind of almost no um, red tape for Mm -hmm. teachers. You know, like a teacher could just say, hey, guys, do you want to stay on at the end of the day and let's learn this tune? And um, 
you know, you didn't need a letter from your parents or you just turned, you got home late. <laughs> that was it, you know. In fact, um, I've, I've told this story before. People don't actually believe this story, but I had an amazing um, uh, classical music teacher. Well, he, he he basically did O grade and higher. And that, I think I got my love for Baroque music from him. He was um, an organist as well, played Bach, Handel, Scarlatti, great Baroque composers, and he uh, he chucked us all into the back of a Land Rover one day and drove down to Glasgow to see the Scottish Symphony Orchestra, uh, and kind of got a I think we got like a chicken burger on Great Western Road, and then um, got home at ten at night. But I just what's quite funny is that my parents didn't bat an eyelid because I was usually out playing football till late anyway. So it wasn't like, where have you yep. been? It was just, mm -hmm. that's just the way it was. I was in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Glasgow watching a, an orchestra. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, I, I was lucky at school. I had some, some great teachers. He, um, he was called Norman Nicholson. He's a, he's a great musician and, uh, Dave Mason. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And my mum took me to, uh, a great accordion teacher in Perth, uh, Sylvia Wilson. She was a classical accordion player. And so I had a real uh, kind of mixed bag of musical education, you know. It does sound, sounds like a great mix of the stuff you're listening to at home and, and you know, the lessons as well. But So your dad, I'm, I'm curious, your dad played by ear then? Did he just pick it up from the TV and learn it by ear or did he, would he get sheet music? Uh, he did get, he could read music. Yeah, he'd, I think he'd, I might be right in saying, you know, even way back when he was in a choir at school, he'd learned to read, you know, at a basic level, and he, he can actually read pretty well. And in later life, he, you know, he's, he's got a little shed up north there, and he sits on. Um, I gave him a version of Sibelius, and he <laughs> kind of he loves trying to do big band arrangements of old tunes, you know. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, so he 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 both he 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 played by ear and by music mm -hmm. actually, and and. Um, but but it was drummed into me at an early age, I think, about how important the reading side of it was mm -hmm. uh, when I was at school. And um, but I think you know potentially to, to probably answer your question, it never. I don't know that it ever crossed my mind that music was something that would be part of my life after I left school. You know, right. I remember just always trying to think what. What can I actually do with my life? Mm -hmm. Music was never, it, it never came up as an option. Uh -huh. I mean, like everyone, you know, I, I would, you know, I loved the police and I wanted to be Sting, you know, I, I wanted, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be able to do that. But um, I didn't, that was like saying I'll be an astronaut. That wasn't, mm -hmm. it didn't seem like that was ever a, an option. Yeah. Um, what would that have been then, Donald? What would that have been? To, well, interestingly, in my in my last year at school, Open High School, I applied for and was accepted for um, um, engineering at Napier, um, electronic engineering, actually. Interesting. Um, sometimes, you know, and probably you meet students who have this situation where sometimes there's a bit of a crossover between a performance of music and recording, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's a route some musicians go down where they decide... I'll include myself in this. You decide maybe you're not quite as except exceptional as you should be technically, mm. so you're never going to be able to be Yo-Yo Ma or whatever. So you, yeah. you, what, what else can I do with music? And I think maybe at the back of my mind, somebody, I think somebody had said to me, 
you know, you could go and work for the BBC and be a sound engineer and you'd have to get a degree in electronics. So I think maybe there was a back of my mind. Yeah. Aye, that, that sounds familiar. That sounds barely mine. Um, and th- I'm guessing that Capricale weren't your first band. Was there bands that came before that? Um, well, embarrassingly, my mother put a band together for me uh, when I was about 13. Uh, me and my sister, who's two years older than me, Shuna, and Karen uh, Matheson, who mm-hmm. was, you know, obviously well well known as a Gaelic singer in the village, but wasn't really my, wasn't my part of my group, my age group. Um, so Karen and um, Shuna and myself and a, and a double bass player called Andrew Campbell, um, we were more instrument owners rather than players. We were just kind of getting going and... Um, but yeah, my mum started to write out these arrangements for folk group, guitar. I was playing penny whistle and singing and we were just ripping off um, old Gaelic records really and playing in Cayley's. So, but I wouldn't really call it a band. So Capricale was definitely the, Capricale came out of this need really to, when I was at Oban High School, um, a good friend of mine, Mark Duff, whistle player, and we, we were he lived in Tunnel and we were friends, but we were also mad about music and we spoke about music. And then we literally tried to find what other musicians were in open high school were playing traditional music. And actually what happened came out of a very strange scenario where Mark and I, again, going back to um, uh, what you were allowed to do as a kid, but Mark and I decided to get on the the ferry to Mull uh, one weekend. I mean, I think I would have been 15. He was maybe 16. And um, we went to the Mull Music Festival, which was really kind of just playing and drinking, you know. It was, uh, it was a very trad festival, Mull Music Festival. It was like kind of the Cayley band scene, dance band scene. Yeah. And we just hung out in pubs and played tunes with people. Mm-hmm. But we ended up on the last Sunday in the afternoon in a big session in the Missionish Bar in Tobamori. And I think there was about 20 people playing. It was a big session, folk drinking before getting on the boat. But And more and more people were leaving until it was just five of us playing. And um, this guy came over and he said, uh, what's the name of your band? And he said, well, we're not a band. We just we just met. And that was literally the first time I had met Sean, the guitarist, and, um, and Martin McLeod, the fiddle player. So, and he asked us to do a radio broadcast for BBC Highland. Mm. So so that's how the band started, really. Just wow, so it came out of that session in that pub? came out of that session, yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. And then we used to just um, come out to my parents' house, my parents house in Tinal. We used to go out and just play, jam, really, jam, play yeah. tunes, go up to the pub. And, and um, yeah, we did a radio broadcast and then... I suppose, so I was still at school and um, we, a lot of people started saying you should make a record and and we went to the bank in Oban and I borrowed some money, I think I borrowed a couple of thousand pounds. Wow. The bank manager knew my dad really well, so it was no problem, you know, what, what tunes are you going to play on the record? That was, was that, was that kind of question, there was no, <laughs> no due diligence. Uh, <laughs> um, and... Uh, I think it might have been even four thousand pounds we borrowed, but we mm. borrowed the money and and we went to the only at the time the only residential recording studio in the country, which was Palladium Studios over mm-hmm. in in, um, 
near, near Trinane in Edinburgh. And uh, four or five days in there and made the first record, Cascade, which was in 1983. So nearly nearly 40 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And so from, from that, you've obviously travelled the world many times with the band and, and done multiple, multiple recordings. Like, what has been the, the highlights of all that for you? What's been the big parts? Well, well, I suppose, you know, that was really exciting, making a record and then hearing it on the radio, just, mm-hmm. you know, even on Gaelic radio first, you know, and just starting to hear it on the radio and then we were getting booked to play gigs. And again, there was no real thought of, I, get, I mean, I, I was 16 initially and then I applied for college and then both Martin and Joni left to, to, you know, follow sensible careers. I mean, this is the thing that's weird for me. My son is 21 and, um, you know, a, a couple of years ago when he was doing his thing, I, I literally turned into my dad. I was saying, music will get you nowhere, son. You know, I was... <laughs> <that> was <laughs> But, but unfortunately, I don't have a my track record flies in the face of that because music did get me everywhere. But um, sure. <laughs> but but that was the way it was back then. It was just mm-hmm. the idea that you would make a career out of playing traditional music was very strange. You know, at that time mm-hmm. there was four or five groups, maybe Silly Wizard, Phil Cunningham's group, and yeah. um, Ocean, um, maybe the Battlefield Band. There was mm-hmm. maybe four or five groups that were touring yeah. in America and Germany and playing trad music. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there was the big Irish scene, you know, uh, you know, kind of Clannad, Moving Hearts, you know, all that yeah. Langsty. But but no, it was a big ask to think that. Uh, so you know, initially, it was just just for fun, and we started playing around Haley's, and then then we were asked. Uh, so eighty so sixty seven. Yeah, I think we're at the date. So yeah, I was eighteen actually. Yeah, we were asked to play to do a tour in Canada. And the tour was in September. It was like six weeks. And um, it meant that I had to decide whether to do that or go to college. Yeah. So I managed to persuade my, my dad mainly that it well, was going to take a year out and go to college after a year. And that's... You're still on that year out? Uh, I still, <laughs> still on that year out. Um, and uh, so that was amazing. Just find yourself in a city like Vancouver... Yeah, I mean, the, the guy that ra- it was the Vancouver Folk Festival, and the guy had just fallen in love with our record, and he put us on at like eight o'clock on Saturday night on the wow. main stage, looking out over the Pacific skyscrapers, twenty thousand people. Really nerve wracking, but in a way, those festivals, those Canadian and American North American folk festivals, were really the making of us because. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, you realised through the rest of the day, the Saturday and Sunday, the festival, you'd go around just watching bands and you'd go, mm-hmm. right, I really need to get Matt together. These guys are amazing, you know. you know. Yeah. So that was the first time I kind of started to understand that everywhere in the world, people had their own cultures and they were doing what we were doing and it wasn't so strange to think that what we were doing was relevant. Yeah. Know? Probably a great thing to see. It sort of allows you to position yourself where you sit. And amongst that as well, and amongst the traditional. Definitely. That's good. Um, so that was, you know, and just from, that was like a springboard, the record, and then I'd say the next sort of main event for us, um, if, you, if you want to call it that, was mm-hmm. Channel 4 asked to do, asked us to do the music, 1987, I think, for a thing called The Blood is Strong, which was a, 
a documentary series about Scots leaving for America mm-hmm. for one hours, but they were they had huge viewing figures and on the back of that, two or three London record labels got in touch and mm-hmm. we signed with a London label, Survival Records, that then we they then licensed us on to BMG. And that's kind of how it, it sort of moved very quickly from there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and one of the things that when we were signed as a band, um, you know, I mean, in fairness, we, Scotland was a really fertile kind of country for bands being at that time, even Glasgow, because we just moved to Glasgow in 1989, I think. Um, and, um, you know, right there on your doorstep, everything was happening, you know, Texas and Deacon Blue and Silencers and Love and Money and Simple Minds. I mean, it was just, it was just everywhere you looked, there was Glasgow bands that were in the charts. And um, so to be part of a major label didn't feel too kind of strange and, you know, um, and, but the, I think it was the thing that kind of changed who we were and how our career fo- unfolded at that point was that the label were very insistent that we start writing. Right. You know, so up until that point, we were really just rearranging traditional tunes and songs and old Gaelic songs. And, and then, and then we got into a writing process and I think that, that kind of, uh, changed who we were and what, how we thought about ourselves. Yeah, you know? Definitely. And did that then influence being part of that major label? When did the vertical thing come around? When did you start that label? Oh, years later. I mean, right. you know, actually, we had a good relationship with our label. We stayed with Survival. We signed with them in 1989. We had a sort of top 40 in 1991. I think the album off the back of that sold... Uh, maybe 200,000 copies. And so we stayed with them, I think, for maybe five more albums, something like that, right mm-hmm. through over over 12 or 15 years, something like that. Um, and then I didn't start Vertical till uh, 1999. Yeah, right. just, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it was more, it wasn't like a, big business proposal and I'm going to start a big label. It was more a case of um, I'd been producing a lot of records at that point for people and I had felt I felt a strange sense of where of ownership of music where you get involved mm-hmm. a huge amount and it's <clears throat> it's like you're bringing up a kid or something like that and then you kind of hand it over and then didn't really have any say on what happened to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I kind of wanted to, to run a label to be able to do that, even if it was a failure or a success, it didn't matter. It was just the mm-hmm. fact that I could kind of beat myself up rather than someone else about <laughs> it not working, you know. So <laughs> Michael McGoldrick, the flute player, had asked me to produce a record, and I said, look, how do you feel about doing this on, on a label that I'm going to put together? So he, he was really the starting point. And, right. um, and um, in actual fact, uh, it was... I was probably about five years too late. Right. I mean, I literally started the label. It was about three or four years after I started it that the industry started really struggling. I was going to say, like, if you'd get in when the CD was still doing what it was yeah. doing. Well, the numbers weren't, you know, and I mean, the vertical records 
story is one that I could take an hour to tell you. <laughs> I won't. It was high, highly stressful and certainly times in my life where I was, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't sure if it was the right thing to have done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I swung it around, but it, I, I can be honest and say that it probably took 15 years before the label was in, in the black. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, huge ad- admiration to anyone <laughs> that runs a label on any level. I mean, I know we're all now in a cottage industry kind of thing. And but I think in terms of if you're doing your own thing, if you're releasing your own product, mm-hmm. particularly now in a sort of digital release, et cetera, et cetera, you can be quite careful about what you spend or don't spend really, you know, you, exactly. you get what you, you get back, what you spend really. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you start a label and you take someone else's dreams you know, then they're they're standing around waiting for you to deliver those dreams. You know, yeah. and so it's a it's a it's a tough thing. You know, um, mm-hmm. um, and but you know what, I've had had some great experiences with it over the years. Yeah, totally. And some great great albums have came out on the oh, label. It's excellent. Um, so no, that that I've always been interested in, especially artists that decide to run labels, just because it's a completely different world and different challenge. Yeah, I think I think that's right. It is, and I think um, it kind of coincided for me at a time when I was I was think it looked like Capricola were going to start doing less as a band, and it I was just seemed to be spending a lot of time in the studio. I'd started to get into a bit of film music, and mm-hmm. it just seemed like the right time to to take on that side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely. Uh, I definitely took it on from the point of view of, of, of a musician rather rather than a businessman. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Um, it's probably a good thing, to be honest, most of the yeah. time. Um, so moving on to TV, the stuff from Channel 4, yeah. that always keep your sort of mind on that? We always conscious that you might end up working with TV more and more? Yeah, I think so. I mean, over the years, um, Capricaley did some other projects, some mm-hmm. TV projects. And then, of course, the Rob Roy thing was a big deal. That was in the early 90s. Um, we did some of the soundtrack for that. Um, and I suppose maybe around about the same time, early 90s, I started um, working with a, a film and TV, TV, TV director, Don Coots, um, who'd worked a lot in music TV. He used to run a series called... Um, he used to be the director of a series called... Um, Halfway to Paradise, mm-hmm. which you can probably find bits of on YouTube, but it was kind of like um, when everything was happening back in the um, sort of year of culture, 1990, mm-hmm. um, it was like a Jules Holland in Scotland mm-hmm. and ev- everything from Blue Nile to Texas were on it. Everybody was on it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Anyway, he he went on to work in drama, and I did some music for him and some 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 projects, and that, and then we worked together for a long time, and that kind of got me into the idea of working more in film music. Um, and it's interesting. I think you know if you have um, essentially, you have to remember that when you're working in TV or film music, you are. A service industry and you are providing you're trying to you're really trying to deliver what's in the head of the director you know you're yeah. trying to deliver for someone else so 
in many ways, you have to kind of put your ideas or you certainly have to put your ego a little bit to the side. It's, mm -hmm. it's not about you. It's, yeah. it's about what, what works for that project, you yeah. know? Um, and interestingly, um, I don't think, I think it looks quite a, it looks quite glamorous from the outside working as a composer <laughs> to film. And it can be, it can be very exciting mm -hmm. if you get amazing scenes and you have a great relationship with the director, but it's not something I would like to spend all my life doing. It's, you know, it's definitely got mm -hmm. elements of, it can be frustrating because sometimes you're really just trying to educate someone else, a producer or a director into, yeah. you're trying to, yeah, you're, you're, I don't know how to. It's like, can you just <laughs> use these musical terms, please? Rather than yes. Louder and darker yeah. and I know, more dangerous. It's like, exactly, just, yeah. help me. And sometimes if people don't have, like I've been in a situation with a piece of music, which I know mm -hmm. is working brilliantly and it's doing everything right. And the director saying, this is not working. And, <laughs> and then I've gone away and done some very simple, like taking out the tambourine and they've come back and said, that's it, it's perfect. Exactly, you know? <laughs> we just need to know they told you, you know. I know. Yes, right. So yeah. it is a, it's an, an interesting <laughs> one. I've been, strangely enough, I've been doing some stuff for Netflix the last couple of years and um, quite enjoyed it, but it, it is, it can be formulated because those guys come in and it's very much like, can you make it like this? Can you make it like that? So yeah, I think yeah. if you realize that that's what's happening and you, you, you completely commit to that, you can do a, a mm -hmm. really good job. Right. Um, and then, and then I think, you know, I look at someone like Craig Armstrong, who's, uh, you know, probably sort of the best known of the sort of Hollywood composers from this part of the world mm -hmm. who's done those big scores. Again, he he will he created a kind of a sound, his own thing. And I think that's really important. If you can create your own thing that people are attracted to, um, it means you're still living your own, uh, living your own world musically, you know? Yeah, that's true. I think quite a lot of the, the, the Icelandic and like Olaf Arnold's yeah. and even Nils Fram have, have managed to do that just now. They're creating this sound that that's right. that really suits what they're doing on, on the TV as well. Um, um, no, totally. But I, I, look, I've been really lucky in, mm -hmm. in some of the work I've done on TV and film, and it is, you know, I think that's the question that's been asked of me a lot um, over the years by younger musicians. Who, who can I talk to? How, how can I... Right. And I, I have to just look at back at my own experience and say, well, look, I just happened to have the right relationship with the right person at the right time, you know. Yeah. That, um, but also there are ways now um, to get your music out there, to, to get, it be get it heard, certainly. Um, and uh, it is, it is a, a difficult thing to get a, a foothold in, but I think... Um, if you're, I think the most important thing is if you are constantly creative, creative about what you do musically, yeah. the, the chance will come along. You know? mm -hmm. I think the the one I remember, I was at the, the preview for that during the European Music Council conference in Glasgow, and it was the Islands in the Edge one. That was ex exceptional to see that. Um, oh, what was that like to work on with that? Like, well, it's interestingly because when that came along, uh, that's the... You know, I remember thinking this was always my gig. Mm -hmm. This was what 
everything I've done in the last 25 years was built was building up to this gig. I didn't know this gig was coming, but when it came, I realised it was absolutely about where I, where my heart was at musically in the sense that I was connecting with those um, kind of vistas and landscapes and, and um, musically is how I was writing. So it felt, for me, it, it was a dream because I, I didn't have to think too It was inspiring. The images were themselves inspiring to write to. And um, also Nigel Pope, the, the producer, he had this idea that if the music, and this doesn't happen very often, but he had this idea that if a music idea was created early enough in before the edit, that if they loved the piece of music, they would edit accordingly to that piece of music, which wow. doesn't, you know, doesn't happen very often. Very unusual, yeah. Um, so there was a there was a bit of that went on, and that so so that was great. And also, it was a proper budget. I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, music budgets for TV tend to be quite limited, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a good budget, which meant I could work with a lot. I worked with a lot of musicians. I worked with maybe twenty five musicians. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the other thing. I'm not really. I don't particularly enjoy my own company uh, <laughs> making music. I love love working with other people, you know, yeah. um, and 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 he, kind of just hearing the music come alive a little bit, you know. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to work in film music, obviously out of a box, and in, in, you know, you know, you can do that, and you can buy sample packs, and um, I imagine it's quite that's going to be quite soulless. Like the idea of you know giving someone something to play and they play it back to you, and you're you're straight away, yep. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, No Islands on the Edge was was great from that point of view. Mm -hmm. um, I put a lot into that. I think probably over a year and a half. Spent a lot of time on that. Um, and it's a fascinating process because you know you realise that within the music, within traditional music, um, there's so much drama. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in terms of the the melodies and the rhythms that have been here for hundreds of years for so much drama. So if you draw on that, um, you know, I would, you know, I was composing new pieces, but in many ways I'm, I'm just reinventing the wheel, you know, from, from, from music from thousands of years ago. Yeah. I was going to say you were probably inspired by those landscapes for the last 20 odd years anyway. So you were, you didn't exactly. have to look at them, you know? Yeah, no, it was, it, that's kind of how a lot of times I would, find inspiration and ideas from just being in in those in those parts of the world exactly um yeah so it came came naturally yeah and and amongst all this like where did how did celtic connections come around and when did that all fit into this this sort of tapestry um yeah it's strange i mean obviously i mean i think i had been doing you know i knew colin hind very well the previous mm -hmm. director and um, Capricelli had been playing every year at the festival. Mm. I, had, I in two thousand and four, I did a big project called Harvest, where I worked with a hundred kids from all around the country, and as a commission. So I knew the way the festival worked. I knew, mm. I knew how important it was really to the community. Um, but essentially, what happened was, uh, so I'm guessing, yeah, two thousand six. It must have been. Mm. Um, Colin left the festival and then uh, they were in a bit of limbo and they, they um, Jade Hewitt, who had been working as, in the festival room, she called me 
and uh, she'll tell you the story herself. But she, she called and said, "Oh, we'd like you to work on the vessel." And I said, "No, no, I, I can't, I can't do that." So I said no, and then she called back and said, "Look, why don't you? Could we hire you just as a consultant for a day? Just come in and just chat about it." So I said, "Well, okay." So I went in, and she said, "What? What would you do?" And I said, "Well." Here's a few ideas I think would be, I think you need to start thinking about the festival as a world music festival rather than, a, you know, just a traditional music festival. Start start engaging a bit more with other world cultures. Um, and she said, well, will you maybe think of a few acts and then develop that? So I, I did that. Um, and then after a couple of months, she said, you realise you're still here? And I was like, Oh yeah, so so I um, said so you may as well you may as well just finish programming this year's festival. I said right, okay, but just this year's festival, I'm nice, yeah. do this. Full so then, so yeah, that was fourteen years ago or something. Like that yeah. Wow. So do you remember um, what you programmed that year? I remember some of the first people I, I got in touch with. I remember mm-hmm. getting in touch with Bela Fleck. He'd never mm-hmm. played the the banjo player from the states, yeah. so I, you know, um, I. I think uh, Baba Mal, um, you know, so there was some pretty out, out there kind of things, but it kind of came together. I just, I really enjoyed the fact that, um, you know, I, I think it's a real musicians festival, you know, yeah, I think I agree. You know, it's, a, it's, it's, it has that, you know, I've, I've experienced that thing of being backstage at the festival club and mm-hmm. meeting somebody and saying, Hey, do you fancy trying this and you know before you know it it's a new band you know so I've, yeah. I've experienced those situations so it 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 was a nice way of kind of like putting people together and just saying mm-hmm. what do you fancy doing and um but i i really didn't think i thought maybe three years five and then <laughs> this is strange thing happens where you get completely captivated and motivated by the idea of a project and sometimes these projects take three years to come to fruition genuinely you know by the time the musician says yes or whatever it's it's Mm -hmm. just one of those things so um and it's pretty much taken over my life but yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's good because there was a kind of there was like a gap with remember when uh, billy kelly had run the sort of big big world stuff and big big yeah and there was a gap in certainly in glasgow where there was lots of world music not being played that's right, yeah. Um, I mean, that was great. I remember Cap Kelly playing, and do you remember the marquee he had down in Glasgow Green? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that the year we played, I think Angelique Kijo played. She did a set. Wow, and, yeah. You know, and he, uh, Billy brought in a lot of bands that I brought back, like Tarafjid Hadouks, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, he, he just amazed. I knew Billy really well, actually. Mm-hmm. He was sorely missed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's funny because I, I I really relate to Billy because there was times where I felt when I met him I thought that's that's a guy that looks like he needs a holiday. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? He's really under pressure, and it it does kind of it it it, it can, you know it can get pretty stressful. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. And so how how has it changed for you over the years, Celtic? Is it has it been changed massively apart from obviously last year or this year? Yeah. Um, I think that just as a team, we've just really learned from our, our mistakes and, or, you know, it's not, I don't know if the mistakes is the right word, but we've just tried to perfect all the elements of it. I think that um, the other thing 
that's useful maybe for me being involved in the festival is that um you know i came from a background of very much diy kind of in terms of a band of cup Kaylee up you know you had to learn how to to do the accounts you somehow you had to put up a pa you know had to you know know how to hire lights whatever you know get a marketer get a work out how to do an album sleeve so you kind of ended up doing everything and i think that part of the you know with Celtic Connections for me I think because I could see it from both sides of the fence I could see it as an organizer but I was always worried for the musicians because I knew I know what that's like I know what it's like to turn up to a venue and things are not right and you know it's not you know so I kind of just wanted that side of it all to be good for musicians um so I think we just tried to you know perfect as much as possible from the musician's point of view um and it's just grown really i think that's the other thing i don't i think it was hard for us uh, as a team to see how to expand but i like the fact that we expanded into the city and a few years ago decided to say well you know maybe it's not all about the bigger and bolder and you know maybe it's not about the hydro maybe it's about places like the glad cafe and hugging the pine and broadcast so we started thinking a bit more about those types of venues and the grassroots and the small gigs. And yeah. I think in many ways they're as important now as the, as the sort of headline, headline shows, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Um, and this year, obviously things have been a lot more different. Um, I think yeah. really my question is, was first of all, it's quite a brave step to do it. I don't think I was expecting to see it. And I thought it was great to see you do it. And I think that it was very brave and the things that I've heard and, and yeah. have been exceptional and I think as well did you find yourself almost becoming like a, a TV director or producer this year sure. seeing, <laughs> seeing that side low, of the fence low budget TV producer yeah um, <laughs> it was really uh, strange I think the main thing was that we, we'd left it very late because right. we would normally be announcing early October programme and um, right up until September, we still thought there was a possibility of audiences in January. So essentially what happened was late September, we said, okay, look, there's no audiences. We're going to have, if we do anything, we'll have to go online. And um, really the incentive came from the fact that we, you know, the Celtic Connections is mostly budgeted on box office. So it's something like 73% of the festival is paid for through box office. So we went to, so we knew there was going to be no box office, essentially. We had no real idea about what, at that point, it didn't look like streaming was very reliable in terms of revenue streams. You know, some people, some bigger acts, I watched like Laura Marling at Union Chapel and stuff like this, and Biffy Clyro and Barnes, and some acts were, you know, managing to make it work. But essentially, we couldn't rely on that. And we definitely couldn't go into a new year and lose money for the for Glasgow life, you know, with everything being so precarious. Yeah. So we, we we basically went to our funders like Creative Scotland and Expo and asked them if they were cool with us using the money to support as many musicians as possible and to film without knowing really what the what it would mean for the public, you know. But I think that it felt 
like a good thing, you know, just bringing musicians' bands into the concert halls, city halls, right. and fruit market, etc., opening them up, putting in, you know, the right production lights and filming them. It felt, yeah. it just felt quite emotional, you know, to see bands playing again that hadn't played for you. I was going to ask you that. Was it quite an emotional experience seeing it again? It was. It was really mm -hmm. unusual. You know, literally some bands, you know, at least half the acts that played said the last time they'd had a full gig was at Celtic Connections, you know? So, um, so just doing that was... And then I guess what happened was we, we'd always said, let's... What I'd always thought was a little bit strange that when you put resources into something for online, if you're going to use a really good platform like Vimeo and you can use HD quality, 4K quality cameras, mm -hmm. just to try and get some kind of relationship with a broadcaster. Yeah. So, so we went to the BBC and we said, look, if we make these broadcast quality, is there an option for a crossover? And they said, yeah, and that's essentially what happened. You might not be aware of this, but some of the stuff ended up on BBC Alpha, on, on compilation programmes that went out. So we, so by knowing that we could do that, it meant we, we, we went at a very high level of, sort of broadcast quality. And, and it felt, <clears throat> it felt like more of a sort of TV version of Gelt Connections. Um, and the stats were fantastic. I mean, you know, we had 28,000 tickets in the end and 65 countries. Um, and actually what was most interesting the feedback was often was like people writing to us from you know the Hebrides or Aberdeenshire or somewhere saying you know we've always wanted to come but didn't know this was the kind of it's really great and yeah. so <clears throat> it you know it was it, it was a positive positive vibe you know? I guess that's promising then as well for even for future audiences I think yeah, they've seen what you can do and what it, what's there. I think for us, like I run a, a similar like a project for the music centre, uh, a composition project, and this, the very same thing happened. You know, this year I did it online through webinars, and we managed to reach people up in the islands and and Lewis, and where we could never they would never be able to come down for an hour session. You know, so um, and laterally I toured it, but we probably couldn't tour it to the islands. It would probably be. It just wouldn't really make sense, but no, that's right. Now we yeah. can do a kind of blended model; it might work. Um, and it was interesting, like the transatlantic sessions thing we did, where we we shot a set in Nashville, and of course, we had quite good numbers of people watching it in the states that wouldn't have been able to fly over stuff like that. So it was interesting. I think, um, you know, what I think are two very different things. I think the um, the live scene, a live gig where there's nothing that compromises that and you pack people in and it's all about that experience. I think that's just an amazing, beautiful thing and it, and it shouldn't really be... I, I don't think you should compromise that experience for the audience with filming. So I think that's a difficult thing. The plus side of the purely filming where there's no audience is that, for me, the plus side being a musician is the audio quality because you're not fighting... The band's not fighting against a PA, so... Your monitoring is very low, and you can use studio quality microphones, and you can make it sound almost like studio yeah, quality recording. Recording. Yeah. The, the the real challenge, if if it's going to happen, the real challenge for us to react to people saying, "Oh, you must do it again," is is there a hybrid model next year? Is there a model where 
you you do have an audience, but you can somehow discreetly film it, and and it's and it's not costing you a fortune. So that I actually think maybe because the stress of getting the stress of getting ninety minutes out every night <laughs> was pretty hardcore. I was in an edit suite like sixteen hour days for days and days and days with the team. But I think maybe I think that maybe. Um, there's an argument to be made for more of a, an idea of a subscription where if the festival happens and you film a certain number of those shows, maybe 20 events, and then you present them over the year, um, you know, once a month, a couple of months, I think, I think that might be a nice thing mm. rather than actually all at the same time. Uh-huh. Well, like a sort of fringe festival type, you know, it's yeah, like an extra yeah. part to it. I don't know, it's, mm. it's maybe too soon after what's happened and, and who knows where we'll be. For us to make a decision, I mean, we're kind of unique because probably most other people you speak to festival-wise are in the summer season, you know, and and they also it's like usually quite intense two or three day thing where we've got this mad sort of three weeks <laughs> <in> January, <laughs> months in January, I know. <laughs> so who knows what oh. where it will go? But certainly, I think the the support of the audience was fantastic, and you just mm-hmm. got that feeling that there are. So many people out there who who really care about the musicians and want it to work and care more than in many in many ways government does. I mean, we we I find it kind of extraordinary that in the whole Brexit negotiations, you know, the arts, which accounts for way more than, for instance, the fisheries as an industry, was just left way down the list to be yeah. dealt with. You know. Yeah. Um, but that's not how it feels for the for the public, you know. No, not at all. Um, the arts is right up there, and it needs supported. You know, we've we've had good support here from um, Expo and government uh, here in Scotland, and and uh, Creative Scotland. Creative Scotland have done an amazing job considering what they were up against in terms of getting out to so many people. Um, but uh, it'd just be be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. I know. Well, let's hope for. Positive stuff next year or the rest of the year. Totally, totally. Donald, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me. No, it's all good. Hope, hope, uh, hope, hope it was uh, reasonably uncontroversial. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, man. All the best. All right. Thanks to you. See you soon. <laughs>